Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. I read an article in the Moscow Times earlier this week, and it really caught my attention. The headline is, The World Must Not Repeat the Mistakes that the Allies Made at the End of World War One." And in the article, the author writes in part, the events in Ukraine are painfully reminiscent of the suppression of the Czechoslovak and Hungarian uprisings and the attack of Hitler's Germany on Poland. Uh, Andrei Movchan also writes, uh, Putin is engaging in, quote, half-crazed rhetoric, and he and his coterie are declaring their right to employ massacre and destruction. Andrei Mofchan is the founder of the investment company Mofchan Group and an expert at Carnegie Moscow Center. Mr. Mofchan, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me to. Let me just start. Uh, let me convert your the first paragraph in your piece into a question. You wrote, never before in human history has a terrorist taken tens of millions of people hostage at once and threatened all of humanity with destruction. The world is facing a new level of threat, one that has clearly been gathering steam for years before suddenly and violently bursting into view. It is understandable, therefore, why the response of a stunned world community has so far fallen short. Even now, it remains piecemeal and indecisive. Apparently, the politicians of the U.S., the EU, and NATO are still viewing the situation through the prism of their own ideas about state structure, domestic politics, and geopolitical strategies. Okay, so the West is saying, as you well know, we have lowered massive sanctions on Mr. Putin and uh, his pals, and they're going to feel the pain, and they will react in a way that we expect them to. You, though, are saying they're just playing into Putin's hands. Tell us, please. Uh, well, um, the problem is that current Russia is vastly different from, from what the Western democracies are. Mr. Putin is a dictator who doesn't care much about the economic prosperity of the country. And people in Russia do not care that much of the economic prosperity either. The uh, country is full of ideas. The country is ideological. And the situation uh, is, uh, is, is too, uh, too fierce and too harsh to uh, allow the, the society to, to care about the economic situation at all. Um, Putin does not care about his assets abroad. He might not have assets abroad at all. His oligarchs have no voice and no power to change anything. And even if they lose everything abroad, they can be compensated by, by the assets inside the country. Um, the country is managed by the, um, uh, by, by the army and the FSB, which is the, uh, the hair of KGB, the famous KGB of the Soviet times. And these people think about the geopolitical forces and the superiority of the country rather than uh, the, the economic substances. Uh, on top of that, Russia still sells oil and gas abroad, and the proceeds from oil and gas are more than enough to uh, compensate for the, for the needs to, to import into the country. Uh, last year, the Russian currency reserves grew uh, at about... Uh, $50 billion, uh, which meant that even at the lower prices of oil and gas, and now the prices are higher, uh, Russia was making money on the exports, um, bringing more dollars into the country than it was used for, for the imports. With that regard, no reserves are needed. They, they can feed themselves with the current sales. 
Um, and it, when the society is not uh, vulnerable to, to the economic changes, these economic sanctions are rather uh, making people believe that the Western countries are hostile, really, and do not want Russia to prosper, uh, then stop Putin. Okay, so if I can just back this up a little bit uh, and, and go to the one of the sentences in your first paragraph. The world is facing a new level of threat, one that has clearly been gathering steam for years and suddenly and violently bursting into view. The timing of Putin's attack on Ukraine was not accidental. This was premeditated, I gather, and it's been in the works for some time. Uh, I, I don't have the precise information, of course, and I am not a military expert, uh, and it's very hard to me to comment. But from the economic standpoint, of course, Europe is mostly vulnerable now. The prices of gas are very high, and the dependence on Russian gas is very high. And the world economy is weakened by the coronavirus. And if I were the, the strategic advisor, the economy advisor to Mr. Putin, and I had to um, uh, to find out the, the best time for such an invasion, I would probably point at, at that date. Okay. Now, if I can ask you to take us inside the power structure in Russia today, the power structure of Mr. Putin, who has appointed his buddies as the heads of the FSB, the successor to the KGB, the heads of uh, national and international commerce, and the heads of the judiciary pretty much covers everything. When you when you have that kind of power structure, he has his friends in these particular positions of authority and influence. A few thousand people. How does this work? How does it? How does this? How does this group manage to govern and control the entirety of Russia? Well, it's it's hard to uh, describe it in all the details because it, it it inherits the Soviet style of the bureaucracy, uh, the administrative structure which was developed by by Mr. Stalin, and 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 then by by uh, people who, who took over from him, and at the same time uh, it works um, like a gangster syndicate, so everybody is um, is is watching everybody. And if somebody wants to defect, the person would be reported to, to Mr. Putin before he, he can act. Because everybody is, is, is afraid of being reported and, and losing his power. There, there were a couple of stories about people who tried to do that. Um, they, they generally were in jail. One of them, Mr. Ulikaev, is now in jail servicing an, an eight-year-long sentence. Uh, and, and people just do not want to, uh, to be the victims of the regime. Uh, and on the other hand, they are richly rewarded by what they do. The, lo the loyalty in, in Putin's Russia is rewarded by, uh, by the ability to make profits from, from the enterprises with the exclusive licenses, uh, with the governmental contracts, uh, the, uh, the right to, uh, to build businesses, the right to collect money from the budget, um, uh, the the more the more the time goes, the the more these people are Russia centric. They they stopped to accumulate their wealth abroad. They started to move it back to to build uh, businesses and and big real estate complexes uh, inside Russia. And that's that was not accidental. Actually, Putin was was accurately preparing the these people for uh, for the for the closing of the country. 
Okay, Mr. Mofchan, in the West, as you well know, better than I do, but in the West, a decline in prosperity, and we're looking at it now, a decline in prosperity is dangerous territory for politicians. It's dangerous territory for governments that are caught in two- and four-year election cycles. So they try to respond. They try to keep the population happy. They try to make sure that their poll numbers don't sink too far. But you write in your piece in the Moscow Times, a decline in prosperity in Russia is met with greater repression, hatred, and rabid propaganda, and that the EU sanctions actually help Putin and his cronies retain control of the Russian population. How does that work? Uh, well, it works completely the same way as it works in Venezuela, for example, or in Iran. Uh, in, in the Western countries, there are natural competition for power. There are competing forces uh, accusing each other of the, of the country problems and trying to, to win the majority of the voters. Uh, in Russia, any competition was, uh, was cut off uh, long ago. Uh, the last real opposition uh, parties were closed uh, at about 10 to, to 11 years ago. Uh, some of their leaders were expelled, some of them were killed. Uh, and um, the, the present Duma, cons uh, the, 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 the Congress, Russian Congress is called Duma, um, uh, consists of about five to six parties. All of them are, are puppet parties. Uh, they, uh, they are not real opposition. Uh, and, and because of that, uh, there is nobody to uh, point the, the public attention to the mistakes or, or mis, misgivings of, of, the, of the ruling people. Um, at the same time, there is a massive propaganda, like, like in the Soviet Union, and that propaganda blames uh, West for, uh, for the negative uh, attitude towards Russia and for the, for the massive attempts to, uh, to make the life inferior. Uh, and when the economic problems arise and appear, uh, people, all the people are explained, then that's, that's because of the uh, hostile actions of the West. That's not because of the problems or mistakes of the government. And the government still tries to do the best and does the best in the circumstances, uh, but the circumstances are hostile. And because the West is so hostile, we need to take the, the actions to defend. And the invasion in Ukraine is one of the actions. And if, if we didn't invade Ukraine, the NATO would have inv invaded Russia in, in a matter of days uh, because Ukraine was ready to start the invasion. And uh, actually, the nuclear weapons were already in the Ukraine to attack Russia. And, and many people believe that. It's hard to, to believe when you look from outside, but about 60% of Russian people support the invasion and the war even when they're said that it comes at the, at the expense of the deteriorating economy. So Putin's a terrorist. I agree with you on that. I mean, how can you not? Do you have fears that he has intent, regardless of what may happen on the ground in Ukraine over the next days, that he has intent to move forward, challenge NATO militarily, and really create a maelstrom, create what many people are very concerned about, and that's a, a global war. Uh, again, uh, I cannot uh, be a good judge for that. I, I never met Mr. Putin personally. I don't know what's on his mind. My impression is uh, that Mr. Putin doesn't need the, the world dominance. Uh, he, he needs to show the victories to his people, um, he needs to be a, a successful leader of the gang. 
uh, and, and if he can't sell uh, the affair in Ukraine as a victory to, to, to the citizens of Russia and to his cronies, uh, he will be completely satisfied for a time period, for a time being. Uh, so Im imagine he, he captures 60% uh, of the Ukrainian territory uh, and, and, and faces uh, fierce, uh, um, fierce struggle with, with the Ukrainians. And at, at some point of time, he doesn't want to lose more troops or, and, and techniques and, and the economic situation becomes worse. He can stop, he can declare that all the, all the goals are, are met, um, uh, occupy uh, the, the eastern Ukraine, uh, declare it as a demilitarized zone, uh, the, the neutral zone, put the uh, puppet government there, um, and, and, and get back to, to regroup uh, and to wait until the sanctions are, are lifted in some part and the budget is, is fixed and, and the situation in the country uh, becomes normal uh, and, play, and plan the next attack. And the next attack may be maybe northern Kazakhstan or it may be Estonia or, or something else. Because his, his, his regime needs the, the, the constant um, uh, going from one victory to another victory, the inflation of the country, uh, the, the whole ideology of the regime is based on that. Uh, and the first time he's defeated and everybody sees he's defeated, he loses his power because that's, that's the law of the gangsters uh, groups. The, uh, the leader loses the power when, when he's defeated. And okay. he understands that well. So we need a real big Alcatraz for this guy. Um, that's, that's bad, but in a way it fits. It's metaphorically probably correct. But you write in your piece, depriving the Kremlin of what it needs to retain control and project power, the group that's in there now, Putin and his friends, is reduced to two, th uh, three things. What are they? Uh, well, I, I don't remember what, what's written in the article, actually. Uh, so I, I can comment on, on what I think about that. Um, I think Putin uses uh, the, uh, the financial resources to build his military and to project control over the country. He uses the, the Russian human resources, and, and uh, the human resources of Russia are rich. Uh, and uh, he, he uses the, uh, the allies in, in the world, and the, the biggest ally for today is, is China. Uh, China essentially allows Putin to, to do what he does. Um, it, obviously, the, the first consequence of the actions of Putin is the reliance of Russia and the dependence on, of Russia on, on China, but probably he doesn't, uh, um, uh, he doesn't fear that. He's, he's, he's ready to, uh, to go for that. Uh, and, uh, and obviously, the most, uh, most vulnerable resource is a human resource. Uh, the engineers, the IT specialists, the scientists, um, the uh, intelligent managers, people who um, who work with the administrative structure within the administrative structure, and that's why actually I, I, I wrote that uh, I thought the the Western actions were counterproductive in that field. Um, the West tried to cut the the middle class of Russia off its deposits in the European Union. Uh, it started to impose the uh, the strict limitations to the visa programs. Uh, instead of that, I think the West should think of accommodating as many Russians as possible, specifically the, uh, the professionals, uh, the scientists, people who understand how to add value to the country.
So the, one of the questions is that's being asked over and over again, being debated over over and again, is um, the question about a no-fly zone, NATO-established no-fly zone, over Ukraine, which President Zelensky has been pleading for. Now, a former NATO Supreme Allied Commander, General Philip Breedlove, is proposing a humanitarian no-fly zone over Ukraine. Let's ask our guest what he thinks, Vice Admiral Mark Normer, former commander of the Royal Canadian Navy and vice chief of the defense staff. Admiral Norman, thank you very much for coming on the program. What's your sense of a NATO-established no-fly zone over Ukraine? Well, uh, good afternoon, Roy, to you and your listeners. Um, I think we'll start with why the no-fly zone. Um, Clearly, um, we've got a request by the Ukrainians to have NATO more actively engaged. I think part of the problem we're observing right now is a sense that NATO is stuck. Um, Other than the provision of material support, uh, weapons and the like, and the uh, reinforcement of their own eastern boundaries inside NATO countries, Um, there is a perception that there is no real action. And this is obviously of great concern to the Ukrainian people and to uh, President Zelensky, and this is why we're getting these pleas. Um, There are differing views uh, on the utility of this. So what I'd like to do, just for your listeners, is I'd just like to take a second here and quickly run through um, NATO its rules, and then I'm going to talk about what the no-fly zone means militarily, and then we'll talk about the implications of imposing a no-fly zone, if you're comfortable with that. Yes, sir. Yeah. So let's quickly, you know, NATO is there for the sole purpose of defending itself and defending its member nations. Certainly, it has a history, um, recent history, of engaging in and supporting what would be described as either humanitarian activities under UN um, support or other military operations, as we've observed over the last couple of decades. So it is not unprecedented that NATO goes outside of its own borders to engage in international security activities, but its primary purpose is to defend the member nations. Um, And, And that's part of the issue that we're watching play out in front of us is that people are making the point, well, you've done things like this before. Why are you not prepared to do them now? Um, So let's talk about the no-fly zone concept from a strictly military perspective and why, in my opinion, in the circumstances, it it makes sense and I understand the need for it and I more importantly understand why Uh, the Ukrainians would be calling for. I mean, really what we're talking about is, uh, from a naval officer, of course, would be the equivalent of a blockade. Um, And it's an air blockade. Um, So we're not talking about policing activity. We're not talking about surveillance activity. We're talking about actually denying access to airspace. And, um, you know, it could be at the invitation of Ukraine. It could be imposed externally. Um, the mechanism by how you do it is, is not really that important uh, for this discussion. It's the fact that you're saying, okay, we're declaring this airspace um, 
basically uh, under our control, and this would be NATO, and nobody's going to fly in it. Um, well, that th- that that has a couple of implications tactically. I mean, first of all, obviously, you're denying now access, um, which is the whole purpose of it, to the Russians. Um, but you're also now, you've got to go beyond just the extent of the airspace, because with modern air defense systems, missile systems and the like, you can't be flying around um, and having a, a, an artificial line in the airspace um, and assume that on the other side of that line, everything's going to be fine. This means that the Russians could just as easily take out uh, any aircraft that are flying around imposing um, or, or uh, imposing this embargo or this, this no-fly zone. So that gets us in a situation where we're into direct conflict with Russian forces. This could be aircraft, you know, fighter-to-fighter scenarios that people can imagine. It can be missile, uh, ground-based missile scenarios. There are lots of scenarios that people can imagine, um, which now are extremely escalatory, and which is why we have um, this this overwhelming sense of caution that's uh, that's coming out. And this takes us to the third point, which is why this is so concerning um, at the geostrategic and political level, because it is seen as a potential escalatory measure, notwithstanding how well it would help the Ukrainians on the ground. So there's my long response to your question, Roy. Well, I appreciate it, uh, Admiral Norman. And it's interesting uh, what General Breedlove says. If you declare a military fly zone, you have to be ready to defend it. So my question is, if we, if that were there, and I don't know what the magic is of the Polish border, other than Poland is a member of the EU and NATO, but if you have a no-fly zone, would that not cause, and I should never ask about what-ifs, but wouldn't that cause Putin to pause, or has he factored in what he will do? Is he prepared for this? And uh, would China provide him some sort of cover, if not militarily, than politically? Or are we drifting too far afield here? <laughs> well, there's lots of layers to your question. I, I don't, it's, it's not unreasonable. And, and let me try and unpack it in, in some bits here. So if we were to look at an example whereby um, we, we, there's, there's ongoing discussions about the establishment of a humanitarian corridor um, in the western part of Ukraine, um, in and out of the Polish border, um, obviously for the provision of humanitarian uh, support. Now, at the moment, that area is being used extensively for the movement of military materials to resupply Ukrainian forces. My sense is that at some point, Russia will lose its patience with that corridor being used. If they were to agree to a corridor, they would not want any military supplies going uh, across that border. But if we were to create a no-fly zone in support of that corridor, um, you've still got the same problems that I was describing earlier, where people would imagine this as being some sort of uh, definitive line um, in airspace. But you have to recognize that, that all of these air defense capability I was describing earlier can reach into that airspace well beyond um, the lines that are drawn on the map. And as it relates to other players, well, you know, it's we're, we're, we're not quite sure where China is on this issue. Um, 
and I'm not going to speculate. Um, I have made a statement um, on another news network earlier this week that I think the uh, the unwillingness of India and China as specific examples to weigh into this is extremely disappointing. And I think that they could play a role potentially if we were to take this whole humanitarian thing seriously, I think there's a role for countries beyond NATO, which could be helpful because part of Putin's um, paranoia it comes from uh, the threat that he perceives coming directly from NATO. All right. Uh, I, can, I just get a 10-second answer from you and a question that probably requires a 10-minute answer. Do you expect... Does your instinct tell you that it's quite possible that Mr. Putin will push things so far that confrontation with him will happen anyway? I'm not good at short answers. You know that, Roy. Um, I, I got this wrong initially. I think Putin has now crossed into um, an area of irrationality. I was giving him credit for being rational. Um, but even in a even in a space of irrational behavior, if I can characterize it that way, I do not believe he is prepared, nor is he capable, given the limits that he has um, in terms of conventional forces, to uh, directly engage with NATO. Um, and I, I think that 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 is um, a line in the sand, perhaps that NATO is reinforcing, and that I don't think. Uh, Putin is is prepared to cross, given the challenges he's having on the ground right now in Ukraine, for sure. Professor Sylvain Charlebois. Sylvain, how are you? Good. How are you? Good. Glad you could join us. Talk to us, please, about the uh, the impact, uh, first of all, that Ukraine has on the global agri-food sector in good times. It's uh, it's a powerhouse. Uh, it, there's no other way to put it. Uh, there's lots of crops being uh, being grown there, uh, especially wheat and corn. Twenty five percent of all exports uh, around the world actually will come from that region. And uh, and secondly, uh, fertilizers are a big deal there, and uh, farmers need fertilizers to grow more crops, increase yield, especially when. When uh, crop prices are actually high as they are now, uh, farmers will, will, will be motivated to use fertilizers. But the problem, uh, Roy, is that fertilizers are unbelievably expensive, which may actually have an impact on productivity this year in Canada and elsewhere. Yeah, so the Ukraine crisis, as it is, is going to drive food prices upward. I, I think, we, first of all, we've seen that with the supply chain and this situation currently between uh, Ukraine and Russia and Ukraine being laid to waste is only going to make things worse. And exporting is going to become ex uh, increasingly difficult, as you pointed out in your op-ed, because most of the food products are sent out by ship and the ports are not operational. That's right. The Black Sea is a big uh, is a big logistical point in that region, and it's being blocked right now. Ninety percent of what Ukraine and Belarus uh, will grow uh, will actually have to come through that port. So that's been a problem. Uh, so in terms of, of of Canada and how we're going to be impacted by this. Uh, I think early on, oil is going to be the story. Uh, I think everyone is noticing higher uh, prices at the gas pump. Well, 
guess what? Uh, transportation companies will charge more to move products around on land. And uh, as we both talked about uh, over the last several weeks with the trucking convoy, uh, the food economy in North America is, is a trucking economy. I mean, it's going to cost more to move things around. Now, after that, in Munza, if this conflict continues, we are expecting grain-based products to be impacted, say, within the next three to five months. And then after that, it will be animal protein. So meat counters, products, followed by dairy, unfortunately, over the next 12 months. It really depends on two things. Um, how long will this conflict last? And two, how China will react? Because China is a big part of this also. They do produce, a, the country does produce a lot of commodities as well. They can influence prices around the world. So uh, Putin could be working with Xi, Russia with China, to at least somewhat control global food supply chains, which, again, in the minute we have left, uh, Sylvain, uh, points out what you also point out in the op-ed, and that is Putin didn't choose this time to invade Ukraine by accident. This is probably the scariest part of all, Roy. Uh, when, you, when you look at Russia, I mean, Russia's intent, I think, is to increase its influence around the world. And there's no, there's no better way to do it than to try to control uh, agri-food growing conditions uh, and prices and market conditions around the world. And, uh, but it, it also recognizes, uh, I would say President Putin would recognize that he can't do it without China. And that's why China is very much probably an ally to Russia, at least economically, not diplomatically, but economically, certainly an influence. So one quick question here. Canada's capability to supply domestic needs. Can we do it? Uh, Well, I mean, farmers in Canada will grow for the world market. It doesn't grow necessarily for us. The the thing about uh, grains uh, is that if a bushel of wheat costs more in Ukraine, it will cost more here. Right now, let's say you look at wheat, wheat is probably at 1030 uh, U.S. a bushel right now. Well, a bushel in Canada will probably be priced the same. So processors okay. will be influenced and consumers as well. Let's talk now about what's happening as far as gasoline price in Canada is concerned. It's going up and... Uh, as you have observed, if you're buying gas in BC, it's been over two bucks for the last couple of days. I paid a dollar ninety-six here in Ontario day before yesterday, and uh, diesel is spiking as well. And that's the fuel of commerce, ships, trains, and trucks. What's the impact? Where is all this headed in the short and longer term? Dan McTague is the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Dan, thanks for coming on, on rather. And how do you encapsulate what's going on, just in an overview? Uh, I think it's, uh, uh, you know, beyond any uh, expectations. Uh, the, the price that we're uh, paying, the price that we're about to pay, uh, is, uh, is surreal. I mean, no one... Uh, to my knowledge, would have predicted, uh, although I did muse with uh, my friend uh, David Booth over at driving.ca, that $2 a litre would be possible if a number of things were to take place. And yet, uh, uh, you know, I did not envision the Ukraine attack by Russia as being one of those elements. Nevertheless, uh, you know, we've gone from this time last year, average prices in Canada, 124 125 a litre, now pushing tomorrow 
to what will likely be, uh, as it, when the dust settles, about $1.85 a litre. So a $0.60 cent a litre increase for gasoline. And, uh, you know, Roy, when we last spoke, it's up $0.26 cents a litre this week alone. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, diesel up $0.35. Cents. It's just not something we've ever experienced uh, in, uh, in, at any time in our past. And the, co- the cost of diesel, the spike in the price of diesel, really affects everybody because that is, and you and I talked about this off the air earlier today, that is the fuel of commerce. It is. It's the fuel in which the world runs. The global economy would come to a grinding halt if we were to stop ships, planes, railways, and trucks, uh, not to mention its importance in processing a number of industrial purposes, as well as things like uh, urea. I get a lot of people looking at me saying, what are you talking about? Uh, about a quarter to a third of all the fertilizer used by our farmers in Canada come, are derived from diesel, urea. And uh, guess what? It's not only uh, expensive, double the price, it's also in short supply. Uh, ditto for nitrogen, which is derived from natural gas. But uh, anybody who thought that uh, having an oil reserve, or at least uh, a, back, a backup in terms of our uh, our ability to you know provide it for ourselves um, is now probably wondering uh, why for years we sort of sat back and found ways to... Uh, as it were, dump on our oil and gas sector. Uh, it's coming at a significant cost for Canadians today. So, Dan, another factor here, another fuel that is significantly important at this time of year is heating oil, and that affects millions of people across this country, and that's going up as well. Food is being impacted. We spoke with uh, Professor Charlebois about that a, a few minutes ago. Can we, do we have the capacity to create a more, um, agreeable perspective for ourselves, either by producing more fuel or, here we go, carbon tax reduction or both? Well, I think we have to consider both given the significant uh, and dramatic increase, which is going to impact people who can make ends meet. 20 years ago, Roy, you and I had great discussions about the uh, rebate to Canadians on the GST for home heating fuel. So it's That's near and dear to all of our hearts. But I think we have to also, uh, you know, become a little bit more adult in our approach about this. Uh, the world isn't just about, you know, uh, the climate crisis. It's now about the energy crisis. It's now about the global security crisis. Uh, you know, Admiral Mark Norman, uh, before you as well. I mean, it alluded to much of this that Canada can play an important role, not just to protect itself, increase the value of the Canadian dollar, restore purchasing power for Canadians, something we've lost since we no longer have the petrodollar. I think we can also be a, a significant key uh, to ensuring that you know Canada isn't, and whether we like it or not, we're going to be here around for a long, long time. That aside, that we're not you know relying to a greater extent in our you know in our short-sightedness on green policy on Russia, on Iran, on Venezuela, and the list goes on. Canada is at the lead uh, when it comes to non-corrupt nations, nations that have excellent human rights uh, track records as well as very strong environmental stewardship. So. Let's just stop, you know, being negative on ourselves. And now I think uh, more and more Canadians, I think, are becoming aware of the fact that uh, it wasn't such a bright idea to have our government going around uh, uh, genuflecting to uh, green advocates and uh, green activists, many of them funded abroad, shutting down critical pipelines that uh, could have been used, oil used in other parts of the world. Canada wants more oil. As my son said the other day, it's the pipeline, stupid. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. 
Have a great weekend. 